because I'm I'm so easy. What are you doing here? Why don't you take this bottle and go to bed? Paradiso. Welcome to episode 10 of Cinephile Paradiso. My name is Quaid Kirshner and I'm joined by my anxious yet seductive co-host, David Collins. Hi, I have the jitters, but I'm also seductive. Wait, what was the other word you used? I said anxious and seductive. So you did right. that right because you said I have the jitters. And then I ruined it. Wait, Well, seductive. what did you say? You said seductive again. And I'm also licking my lips while having the jitters. So while biting you your nails. Exactly. <laughs> Tonight, <laughs> Tonight we'll be exploring the theme of power, both figuratively and literally with our film selections. I'm watching Quaid Flex. Look at his muscles. They're so big. He's so powerful. Oh, I wish. I need to go to the gym a bit more, I think. I've only been twice this week. I think you're looking beautiful. You're... I'm wearing a big jacket, David. You can't see anything underneath this. There is no power. I know how to read the form. There is only tiredness. <laughs> Fatigue. <laughs> well, if, if that's strength, I'm really powerful. How are you feeling tonight? I'm really good. I went to the gym before. Not that this has become gym podcast. Oh, yeah. Imagine that. Oh, bro, I went to the gym and I like... Oh, how much you lift, bro? I like 200 kilos. I can't stop farting because of all my protein shakes, bro. I like the chocolate one. Yeah, well, I don't know where this is going. We are in a strange mood tonight, so maybe we need to get back on track. Let's dive into it. Let's dive into it. So, as I said before, we're exploring power, both figuratively and literally. Do you know what I mean by that? I do, because originally when we got this, when Amrita, our guest last week, pulled this out of the jar, I thought to myself, wow, what a powerful theme. Ha ha ha. <laughs> then I thought, what does that actually mean? There are so many ways that you can interpret the theme. So, again, I would like to hear some movies that came to your mind before we ended up coming up with a selection. And I, even though I would like to take credit for the movie I'm going to talk about, I really feel like you sort of swayed both decisions because you sort of had the brain for picking the right ones. Well, we'll see what the listeners think because they may <laughs> think that the one movie I chose was a bit inappropriate, but I don't know. I feel like in some ways it is appropriate to power. But yes, the movies that we were thinking of, I had them written down somewhere. Uh, wow. I cannot for the death of me find them, but I will say some at the top of my head. I did mention, oh actually no, I sent them to you on Instagram. Do you remember I sent you the list on Instagram? Sorry, we can like cut this bit out. Not that I want you to over edit the episode, Well, I mean, off the top of my head, some that sprung to mind when you think of power, I thought of Star Wars because you have the force, which is kind of like, power. You thought of Star Wars? Mm -hmm. Really? Yep. I didn't expect that from you. I mean, we can also say every single DC and Marvel film. Well, that was another one. Um, what's the, you know, superheroes, what's the one that has Rorschach in it? <laughs> Rorschach? You yeah. mean Rorschach? That's the one. That's uh, from Alan Moore's Watchmen, but you're referring to the movie by Zack Snyder. That's right, because there's that blue man that suddenly has world-building powers and that sort of overflows in this really existential way, so I thought that ties into it. Yeah, in the comic books he has such a big dick. There's also, and in the movie, have you seen it? It's flopping all over the place. Really? Slapping about his knees. Yeah, absolutely. Are you sure? I thought 100%. he wears black underwear in the movie. No. Well, I mean, maybe the edit you saw, but the edit I saw, cheapest. Oh, God, I want to see the edit you saw. Uh-huh. Um, I cannot find the list for the death of me. So, yeah, other movies that we did think of were uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh. 
The Green Mile. Green. Goodfellas. Yes. The Godfather. That's right. Trilogy. Scarface. Scarface. Oh, I love Scarface. She's on fire. Yeah. Don't get high on your own supply. Exactly. But yeah, those were the main ones we were thinking. And also, who cannot think of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man? Because there's that famous line, with great power comes great responsibility. And as we all know, that is a saying that was coined by Spider-Man. Actually, it was by Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I should know that because I am a diehard DC fan and would never betray my company. Why? What has that got to do with making microwavable rice? What? Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben's rice. I don't think they have Uncle Ben's rice in the Spider-Man universe. Wow, this is going really off topic. You're going to have to make so many edits tonight, I feel. Whose film should we review first? Let's well, get yours, because usually we do the more serious one than the light-hearted one, but let's ease into it with some stretchy, flexy, super paddly powers. Okay, well, I chose Pixar's The Incredibles from 2004, directed by the one and only Brad Bird, who also directed, do you know? No. The Iron Giant. You haven't seen The Iron no. Giant, have you? Okay, well, that's that's another story. <laughs> An another brick in the wall between us. Yeah, another brick in the wall between our friendship. Uh, so, The Incredibles. I'm going to give the synopsis I've created for this, even though I feel like all our listeners have probably already seen The Incredibles. You know what assuming does? It makes an ass out of human eye or something. Anyway, in the city of Metroville, superhero newlyweds Mr. Incredible, who has super strength, and Elastigirl, who can shapeshift her body, are forced into early retirement after an onslaught of controversy and prosecutions against the superhero community. Fifteen years later, Bob and Helen Parr attempt to live a quiet suburban life with their three children, Violet, who has invisibility and can, and can create force fields, Dash, who has super speed, and Jack-Jack, who has yet to develop powers. However, Bob is struggling to live a normal life and hates his dead-end job at an insurance company, which is sucking his soul dry. I, I feel like we can relate to that, David. <laughs> Not that we work at insurance companies. Little does Bob know that he's being followed and lured into a sinister plot devised by his once-friend, now-turned-foe, Buddy, a wannabe sidekick who is now a wealthy and resourceful man, hell-bent on revenge under the guise of Syndrome. Will the Incredibles stop Syndrome's evil and dastardly plot? Find out next week. And yes, Brad Bird's film was also inspired by 1960s spy espionage thrillers. I see that. This is an incredibly complicated movie as far as plot is concerned. There are so many bits and pieces and twists and dives and... I, I appreciate the sophistication of uh, the layers that they managed to put in this movie. Well, definitely. And my partner was really surprised because when we rewatched this a few nights ago... Business partner or life partner? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He keeps so many secrets from me. <laughs> Will I propose tonight? Find out. No. <laughs> no next no. week. So much is happening <laughs> yeah, next no. week. No, it does. And my partner even said, wow, I didn't realize the complexities and layers of this film. It's, it's not just about power, literally. It is also about work-life balance, family dynamics, burnout, trying to live, you know, in society, dealing with mediocrity. It's... Dealing with mediocrity. Also dealing with cultural ideas surrounding things like liability, being overly litigious, the fact that the people that are there to save them are suddenly being sued. It's very American. The people that are trying to save them are sued if they don't necessarily get it right, so suddenly they're incapable of 
using their superpowers to help people. There's so much going on. Also, one of Quaid's major criticisms about films is it being overly plot driven and not developing characters and something that I found quite sophisticated about this movie was despite the fact that it is incredibly layered with its story the thing that really got me or kept me with this film was how involved it was with exploring the characters within the family. 100% and there's even a line where Dash is saying to his mother Helen I thought our powers were nothing to be ashamed of, they're special and then that made me think is this film a subtle metaphor for for the what, LGBT wait. community. Here it there is, There I said it. You heard it here first on Cinephile Paradiso, episode 10. I think that... That's become your catchphrase. I think <laughs> that, yes, but in a larger scheme, I think that it's definitely about how the things that set you apart are your strengths. So the fact that Violet's insecurities about being seen, that teenage anxiousness is the thing that makes her strong and powerful. It's her ability to become invisible and set up force fields around herself. And then counterbalancing that, accepting that part of herself, her superpower, she's able to become more confident in herself and sort of balance out her personality. Same thing with Dash, Dash how, you know, his hyperactivity, something that may be perceived as... His ADHD, maybe his ADHD. ADHD. Exactly, is actually the thing that means that he's hyper-attentive and incredibly sporty in other ways. The things that usually we might feel like culture or society is telling us is wrong with us is actually the thing that makes us special and powerful. Should I go into special, not special, interesting facts? I want to know Know some interesting facts about this film. I mean, I think you would know this one I'm about to mention. So Lily Tomlin was considered for the part of Edna Mode, but turned it down when she heard Brad Bird's vocal performance saying, what do you need me for? You got it already. I didn't know that. Yeah, so Brad Bird plays Edna. Fuck. Yeah, funny, hey? Anyway, so Jason Lee, who plays Buddy Syndrome, recorded his vocals in four days, while Craig T. Nelson, who played Bob Palm's Jane Credible... four days? Yep. While Bob Palm... I mean, not... <laughs> while Craig T. Nelson, who plays Bob Palm, Mr. Incredible, recorded his vocals over the span of two years. That's insane. That's pretty insane. One like, of my favourite lines from him is, we'll get there when we get there. Because who hasn't had a road trip like that? Well, that's also what I like about the film... It kind of plays on a lot of tropes that have been overused, however, it kind of just works in this film. I'm referring to the part where, you know, Mr. Incredible, he's after these high-speed hijackers and he finds this old lady in a park trying to save her cat from a tree. I mean, that is such a superhero trope. And they make it quite comedic. And then there's another trope in the film that I really love that they... It's, well, it's what you said. We'll get there when we get there. That's not so much a superhero trope. That's more of a nuclear family trope, but... Yeah, it's playing on family Nuclear dynamics. atomic family. <laughs> nuclear well, family. It's atomic. <laughs> it's atomic. Um, another interesting fact is the unusual angular architecture in the film was based on a distinctive style of 1950s space age futurism known as Googie, often seen in coffee shop, bowling alleys, and many contemporary homes of the era. Tiki architecture, another 1950s pop style and often considered a form of Googie, is also exemplified in many of the island sets. You might uh, recognise it from Edward Hopper's popular painting, Nighthawks. I'll have to look at that. Also, I know I've done enough like interesting facts, but no, also, it is the biggest selling DVD of 2005 with over 17 million copies sold. And this is why I strongly believe that there is no way that movies today are making money that they once did 
because of streaming services. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Also, this... Oh, then again, I mean, I did have to pay $19 to watch this movie online because I could What? Yeah, so... What do you mean? To rent? No, because you can't rent it. So... I think because Disney has this movie by the balls, a lot of other movies you're able to rent off services, but this one... So did you go on Disney Plus? No, I just bought the fucking thing. No. Mm. Why didn't you tell me? I could have had you over. I've been we very could have... busy. I just had to watch the movie. Jesus We can cut Christ. this bit out. It's kind of a bit sad. Um, but anyway. Uh, no, 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 leave this in. This is funny. That's really funny. Anyway, I'm supporting this film. Anyway, so for me, The Incredibles is definitely Pixar at its golden age, at its peak. There was so much thought and like precision, precision, precision. <laughs> there was so much thought and precision put into making iconic character designs that would stand the test of time. I'm talking about Toy Story where you have Woody and Buzz, very iconic, Monster Zine, where you have Sullivan and Mike Wazowski and Finding Nemo. The list goes on of those initial films. However, I feel like Pixar definitely lost its touch when they started getting into the realm of cars. I know that a lot of people love Ratatouille, they love Up, they love Inside Out, but I just, I don't know, I find the character designs quite lazy. It doesn't, for me, I don't find it iconic. I mean, maybe that's a good thing that they're not as iconic. Maybe that means in a way that they're a little bit more sophisticated in a way. I, I don't I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. I understand what you're saying. I am wondering whether what you're... This is childhood nostalgia? Well, I was going to say it differently. I was going to say, do you think the drop-off in interest in these movies may have happened when your interest started to fall in other areas in life as well, you matured and, you, you're, you know, your sights were set and you, your tastes just started to mature and you were interested in other types of film and that might have been where your attention was during those periods? Because I'm not saying... I don't want to put it down to childhood nostalgia because those these movies definitely have a huge amount of merit and are incredibly engaging and... I know, I feel like sometimes, Quaid, you overuse the term family movie when you're definitely talking about children's movies. Uh, there are no such things as children movies, well, they are no, family movies. No, no, but these films, I feel like, are family movies because there are themes and there are characters that are written that are definitely geared to both the parents and adults that are oh, watching, no. along with the children. They're very sophisticated films. So I think that there is a huge amount of merit in them. So I'm not saying it's just childhood nostalgia that brings you back to them, but the films that you're less interested in, I think may have been when you were looking elsewhere. So yes and no, because I do remember watching Wally, for instance, when I was still a child. And I Wally didn't really speak to me. It just I didn't me I didn't like it. The same future. the same with Cars. The only thing I liked about Cars was the song uh, sung by the Rascal Flat. That's life as a highway. Other than that, I didn't really like cars. Also, I think you really and then have I, to be a. I think it's difficult to anthropomorphize a car. I think you need well, to be a car person. My thing about Pixar also is that initially, I think they focused on a theme essentially. So you have Toy Story, which focused on toys, and you had Monsters Inc., which focused on monsters, and you had Finding Nemo, that focused on marine life, and then you had The Incredibles, which focused on superheroes. And I feel like. Pixar was so focused in what they were doing, but then that focus seemed to shift and change when they realized that they also not only had a child audience, they also had an adult audience that was taking, I guess, not taking, but they were very devoted to the films that they were making. So I think they started to get a bit obsessed in a way with trying to make adults cry. And when I say that, I mean Up. I'm sorry, but Up was probably that first film in the Pixar 
pantheon where everyone talks about the beginning scene where the couple are growing older and then husband loses what loses his wife and everyone cries and everyone always talks about how up is the most sad animated movie ever created which is wrong it's grave of the fireflies obviously but yeah I, I don't know i think for me pixar had their stride again with coco have you seen coco i haven't seen coco i must see coco I've it's had a coco. beautiful okay. film um when you say that they lost their stride. Yes. This is just my opinion, because there are movies that you were talking about in there that didn't speak to me, but I admired because I wouldn't say that they were trying to make adults cry. I feel unquote. like they were, though, no, with, like, no. Inside Out. It's like, we get it. And also... But here's the thing. I think that they were in a position where a company was able to and actually did take risks, where someone came to them with a pitch and said, I want to make a movie about... I don't know, emotional and mental health in children or about loss or about the fu dystopian future that we may be heading towards, you know, with WALL-E and things like that. And they are huge swings. And especially for a massive company, a lot of them would just say, no, 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 come back to us when you say it's about bees. And, you know, <laughs> the B movie. Exactly. It's like, come back to us when it's something we know is a seller. But these things are something that had a platform, was actually willing to say, sure, we'll take a risk on it. We'll see what we'll do. And I think that they had, I think that they made some pretty interesting stories during that period. And the fact that people say, for instance, Up made them cry. I'm like, they were actually crying. So it did speak to them. It worked. It just didn't speak to you. No, they did. Even... You're like, no, it didn't speak well, to me. Even so the character failed. designs, like, do you feel like the character designs in the early Pixar films are quite iconic, whereas the designs in later Pixar films aren't that memorable. Even, I'm sorry, but like with Soul, beautiful movie. However, the, the designs of the spirit world, I thought were very lackluster, along with even Inside Out. I think the character designs of the emotions and the girls' heads are very lazy. Like, I, I don't know. And then even, have you seen the trailer for the new Pixar film, Elemental? No. It looks awful. I'm like, how the fuck did this come off the drawing board? I, in um, Soul, I like the risks they took with the design for spirits. Really? I don't think it was a risk at all, David. They literally drew blobs on the screen with eyeballs. Oh, That's not taking a risk in design not at those, all. That's... You, you know how they had the, the um, sort of universe um, facilitators that sh showed up and were sort they of... Were, they, they were a bit interesting. Shapes. Lines. They were like line work. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, I'm not trying to be a contrarian, but I don't... I think that it is about when you were a child, these characters were more formative. Because also, I really, I really like The Incredibles, don't get me wrong. But although the designs are engaging, it is just your stock standard homogenous white nuclear family in what you would describe as a superhero outfit. So the de designs are, the by theory, quote unquote, iconic because they are... Simple. Well, yeah. But that's what I meant. The I, mean, I feel like the earlier films had this the designs were simple yet very effective i mean in a way in inside out the character designs of the emotions I would the girls say, I would say, are also very simple but yeah. i don't think they're effective at all well inside out is the one that i you love that one. Oh, my sister loves it who is a psychologist for context i now suddenly feel weird yeah all, all, all psychologists love inside out but isn't it nice that there's a movie for psychologists like isn't it good that there's a movie out there they can watch and go yes finally it's being understood all i'm saying is if studio ghibli oh my god created Inside Out, it would be a whole different story. Since Coco, I have also loved Luca and uh, Turning Red. Beautiful. Um, let's get back to the movie because I haven't yeah, seen those movies. Of course. We, yeah, we're, I mean, it's good to talk about... No, I, no, absolutely, you know, Also, absolutely. I'm actually... I have to say, for the record, okay. because everyone listening, I want you to know this, I am quite sad and I feel like I've betrayed my soul 
by reviewing a Pixar film on this podcast before even reviewing a Studio Ghibli film or a Disney film. But do you know why that is? You know why that I'm is? like, fuck. Do you know why that is? You're why? waiting for the appropriate theme to come up so you can really sink your teeth into it. I mean, we could have done a few Ghibli films for, for power. Like the one you hate with the crystal. Oh, yeah, you're right. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, um, one th- I want to talk about positives first for The Incredibles. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I love how it explores a major facet and intrigue of superhero lore and culture with the whole concept of where do they get all those cool costumes? Yes, that is a reference to Batman 1989. Where do they get? It? Where does he get all those cool toys? Anyway, and the answer here is Edna Mode, who is iconic, and I think she is a gay icon. Ed Namod, <laughs> darling, darling, please, <laughs> don't make me beg. Yes, um, editor of American Vogue. No, who's she based off? I don't think she's based. She is based oh, off she, someone. Oh, I have no idea. Hang on, I want to look this up because now I'm, um, you, you keep talking. Also, about like, up. Buddy, who's, you know, syndrome later on, I didn't like his hairstyle. It's very Goku, and his look is very American, but then, like, his hairstyle is very anime. It kind of clashed a bit. Didn't really like the aesthetic. I think they should have just kept his head shaved. What do you think? Is that me being a bit too petty and picky? Edith Head. She's based off Edith Head, costume designer. Oh, okay. But yeah, did you agree with me about the syndrome hairstyle? It didn't really bother me. It didn't bother you? Okay, well, we're going to skip that part then. <laughs> um, so, talking about power, because, you know, tonight is about power. I think it's pretty stock standard. The Incredibles, they use their power for good. Now, but I think the biggest journey in terms of power is actually with Buddy. Because initially, he, you know, wants to use his power for good, but because he is so hurt by his role model, because he feels rejected by Mr. Incredible, he ends up using his power later on for self-centered reasons. So, I think if we're going to talk about a character's overall objective, he all he wants is love, acceptance, and reassurance, and he ends up wanting to get that from the civilians and the public of Metroville because he didn't end up getting it from Mr. Incredible when he was at such a young and vulnerable age. It becomes about who is entitled to be seen as having power and who's allowed to use it based on the hierarchy. So the fact that he's rejected by the status quo, yeah, he goes to the people and says, well, I've been denied my power by the current system that's in place. I want to democratically be acknowledged for my power. Exactly. And this movie shines that in a bad light. And I understand why, but also I feel like the message is a little bit worrying in the sense that it's sort of saying, oh, people that try and establish their own path are dangerous to society and terrorists and bad. You need to you need to work within the system. And if you were rejected by the system, just accept it. Because if you try and appeal to the people and do your own thing, you're working against society and you're an enemy of the state. I Okay, so I do understand that perspective and reading of this film. However, I don't think that film is saying that in a general sense. I don't think sense. they're doing it all Yeah, it's like, you know, how you said, you know how you said with Joker, you said, oh, I feel like it's dangerous because it's kind of saying people with mental health issues will turn to violence. I don't, this is... The Incredibles, this is a specific story about this story. It's not making a comment in general about everything. We know the other movie that that's very similar to. What? It stars Chloe Grace Moretz. The Carrie remake? Jackass. 
I'm not jackass. Oh, um, kickass. Kick-ass. Yeah, it's I the same sort of thing. You know, he wants to, the other kid wants to be a superhero and then becomes a supervillain. Yeah, but I don't think, with Buddy's character, I don't think it's saying, oh, you know, like, if people try to make a name for themselves and try to work outside of the system, then they're evil and they're going to do it for evil causes. I think this is just this specific story. We don't necessarily need to dive too much about that because the movie, for me, really is about family dynamic and acceptance it of is, individuality. It is. That's what I took away so from So maybe it. I picked the wrong movie. Maybe this isn't too much about power. But it but is I about like, power because it's yeah. about empowerment and the power within the individual for accepting yourself for your quirks and your individuality and what that can bring to the table that makes you unique and special rather than they're told they're not allowed to use their powers. They're told that they're not allowed to be who they are. They need to be this cookie-cutter homogenous family. And everyone See, it is a metaphor for the LGBT community. But not just that. Also, <laughs> like I said, you know, people that might... Bit like, you know, for instance, I'm dyslexic and I feel like even though I've been told my whole life that that is something that is wrong and I don't fit into the system because of it, yada, 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 you know, I was told to drop out of school, all sorts of things. Yeah. But I think that it has given me insights and ways of thinking and lateral perspectives that actually empower what I'm interested in, you know, being creative and doing all sorts of things outside of the quote unquote structure that I've been told I need to fit into. So by embracing that and working with it, I've actually made my life richer rather than being ashamed of myself and just trying to pigeonhole myself. So even though I understand what you're saying about it being a metaphor for LGBTQI community, which it definitely is, there are other facets of oh, I'm like I'm low key well. a little bit joking too, but I get it too, because when I was younger I was diagnosed with an auditory uh, learning difficulty and also growing up, like during primary school, the principal said to my mom, oh, Quaid's really bad at English. He's never going to be good at English. Never going to get a university degree. A- anything like that. I mean, I still don't have a university degree. But who so maybe, needs one? So maybe, I've got a master's and all the good it's done, me. <laughs> and so maybe she's right. But anyway, yeah, you heard that first on Cinephile Parody, so episode 10, that David Charles Collins is dyslexic and Quaid <laughs> yeah. has an auditory learning difficulty. <laughs> Sorry, like, and Quaid never went to university. And yeah, I, well, I did, but I dropped out. I wanted to speak a little bit more about characters. There's two more characters Please. in particular I want to talk about. Yep. Let's talk about Mirage. Yeah, she is course. so sexy and mysterious. And even my partner was saying, I want to know what her story is. And I want to know what her story is too. I'm like, ooh, were they daddy issues? Because she's very much in service to Syndrome. But like, she's so much more badass. And I feel like she can rule the joint. He doesn't really... He can't really. I don't know. He's only as good as she is at empowering him. Yeah, but I want to know her story. If there was a Mirage spin-off film, I would watch it. Pixar, if you're listening to this, David doesn't seem to agree. Anyway, <laughs> Violet. Let's talk about Violet. She oh, was. I loved I'm, Violet. Oh, really? I found her so annoying. And you know how I found her annoying? That scene where Helen is, like, you know, riding the plane and her kids are in there and then she finds out, oh, shit, we're about to get hit by missiles. And then she first says to Violet, oh, Violet, use your powers, put the force field around the plane. And she's like, but, Mom, you told me never to use my powers. Fair enough. That in that first instance, but then in the literally the next scene, she looks out the window. Violet looks out the window, and she can see these missiles heading right for her and the plane. And then the mum says to her again, "Violet, put a force field around this plane now." And this is Violet. But you told me not to use my powers. I'm like, girl. You're about to die. Just fucking put the force field around the fucking plane. Well, here's... I I think that part of the reason that Violet spoke to me... I don't feel like I was a Violet, but... I was Violet's age when I first saw this movie. So, How old were you when you first saw this movie? I was 10. Isn't that scary? I don't want to talk about it. Um, 
So I was 16, 17. That's so wild. So everyone at that time was sort of the long floppy fringes, slouched over, don't look at me, I'm ugly, lisping because they're wearing braces. They were violet. And you are at that age as well where you learn about, you are transitioning into young adulthood. And I do understand that thing where you've been told your whole life to behave one way and your authority are your parents. And then suddenly you're being told, okay, they were just doing their best to protect you, but in the real world you need to take agency and make decisions yourself that may contradict the things that you were being taught for your better interest. Or you're being taught that actually you may have been taught a hard and fast rule, but it's actually more nuanced than that. And you can sometimes break those rules. And you can see that conflict in her when she's like, but I've been told my whole life never to do this. Now you want me to do it? What if the worst thing possible happens because I'm doing the thing you've stressed to me my whole life I'm never meant to do? So I understand a young teen developing brain having that conflict. Definitely, but also if I saw a missile heading right for me and I had the power to stop it, I'd fucking do it because I don't want to die. That's because <laughs> you're a different character. You're more of a um... You're a go-getter, Quinn. You're a go-getter. You don't wait for that missile. You go looking for that missile. And then I feel like Dash was kind of there. I, you know, I'm probably saying that because I can't really relate to Dash. I wasn't like the sport. hyperactive child? I mean, the hyperact hyperactive child I was, but I wasn't child. really like the... Sportive kid? The, yeah, the sporty kid, but I feel like the, the characters that really do shine there are Bob and Helen because of their relationship. Absolutely. 100%. And I feel like Helen, the whole time, was so on the money. All of Bob's issues were actually his own insecurities. That's the how, how he, Well, yeah, well, how he was saying, oh, well, you should let Dash actually compete in racing because he'd be good at it. And then Helen's like, this isn't about you. Yeah. Because she accepts that, yes, as much as it sucks that they have to hide their superhero abilities, this is the reality of the situation. And in order to keep this family safe, which is the number one priority, they have to abide by these shitty rules. Whereas he is still in a place of not being able to accept it because... He feels like his life now has no meaning. And that's also because he's not looking for meaning in other areas. He's only focusing on one aspect, which was my superhero days. When really, he could be focusing on the fact that, hey, I'm at a, in a new chapter of my life. I have children now. But that doesn't seem to... I don't know. But I do feel bad for him because his job fucking sucked. And oh my god, when he punched that boss through the walls, I was like, yas, queen. I think it's complicated. I think there's two things going on there. Because yes, absolutely, when you have children, you should be able to take pride and interest in the thing that they're doing over you being the central character of your own life. That said, you shouldn't swing too far and fall into the trap of making that your entire idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can't. Your own no, 100%. Well, that's why, uh, what, sorry, that's why Bob and Frozone still go out, you know, every now and then listening to the police radio in the vain hope to, you know, stop a burning building. Frozone, oh, he had beautiful thick lips. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. A anyway, um, what didn't you like about the film, David? Uh, look, I don't necessarily think that there were things that I didn't like about the film. I think that I really enjoyed the fact that it commented on the litigiousness of American society and we can definitely see that trickling over into Australian society. I don't know. I think that that was an interesting comment. I think that it's a film of its time. Like, you know, again, it is a very heterosexual, homogenous white family. At the time, that is probably the only type of film that could have been made like this. We are slowly moving in more progressive directions. So I don't think that this film should be shamed for not necessarily being more than it is. And as you said, the superhero angle was the coded language for speaking about your individuality and those things that might make you different. It's nice now that we can see that slightly more actual representation. It would be nice if we could have a few more queer characters in cartoons and children's films. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in also, because I know my DC comic knowledge, right now the animated series Young Justice, the 
I think it's the fourth season, Aqualad has come out and there's a beautiful kiss there. Oh, that's cute. Aqualad's also so hot, but anyway. Oh, Jackson Hyde. How old is Aqualad? Oh, oh shit. Let's just go with 18, yeah. Let's go with 25. Yeah, let's, well, let's, let's, yeah, let's go for 25. <laughs> um, also, something that you did mention a couple of weeks ago when we were doing our Halloween episode, I liked how you spoke about how the corpse bride was dealing with, with death in a children's film because you feel like the children's films of today are so scared of... Addressing Addressing it. death. And whereas in The Incredibles, we have a suicide scene. We, it, it, and it, it an opens, attempted suicide scene. Suicide I was like, attempt. oh my god. It opens with a suicide attempt. We have uh, machine guns. We have all sorts of things. There's missiles. even that scene where Helen is telling her children, this isn't like the cartoons that you watch on yeah. Saturday morning. Like, these people will kill you. These yeah. villains will kill you. That was... Um, and it definitely get, solidified the stakes. Absolutely. But also, you watch this as a 10-year-old and you weren't traumatised by it. So, I think that, yeah, we slightly patronise children and their ability to process certain things and in cartoon form an introduction to those themes lightly I don't necessarily think is the worst thing in the world but what do I know? And what, what, which character did you empathise with the most? That's hard because when I first watched it I think that I empathised with Violet the most. Yeah of course. Because yeah. I, again I was that age where you sort of you're so uncomfortable in your own skin and it's difficult to sort of embrace just the fact that you are allowed to be present <laughs> If that makes sense. Everything is so excruciating. It's so embarrassing. But now that I'm a little bit older, I think, I think Mr. <laughs> Incredible himself, yeah. exactly. Because you're like, is this where I want to be? Does my life have meaning? Am I thriving? Or am I living a compromised version of my life? So, oh. you know, there's definitely that element of it. Stop hurting me. What about yourself? <laughs> Character I empathise with? Well, the same Bob. Yeah. Bob, I mean, I wish I could empathise more with Helen because Helen is a fucking badass mum and I love her, but... Yeah, it's Bob. See, this is the thing as well that I think might have aged slightly about this film because this sort of family dynamic is quite often shown representing the man... It's kind of the Simpsons demons. in a way. We're tackling his demons, but then there's usually some smoking hot wife that is a wonderful mother and also has a job and holds it all together and is the console for her husband. I'm like, she's a layered character too. She's allowed to have wobbly days where she needs a few glasses of wine and to bitch to her friends about how she wonders whether she married the right man I or think not. No, I think she did have wobbly moments, especially the part where she was really angry with Mr. Incredible and then she finds him for the first time and then he pulls her towards him and she's like, no, no, no. And then he kisses her and at first she's like repulsed by the kiss, but then she just falls into it. She's like, oh yes, I will kiss this man. Now that, that you're has, describing like, the scene, it sounds a little bit more concerning than... Well, it was a little bit concerning, to yeah. be honest. Didn't you see that a bit? Because she was saying... Yeah. Yeah. Not a huge amount of consent going on there. God, and you heard that first on Cinephile Paradise episode 10. <laughs> I'm sure it's been discussed elsewhere, and if it hasn't, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, what would you give it out of five stars? I would give it 3.5. Really? Yeah. Oh shit, no, I think it deserves more. I'd give it a four. A four out of five, definitely. I thought it was a good, solid film. Also, the design. I love all the architecture. Here's the thing. I thought it was a good film, and I watched it, and I enjoyed it, and I thought, yeah, that was a good film. But I didn't walk away from it going, oh my god, great film. We'll definitely watch it again. Love it so much. I was like, good film. It's sort of like you have a nice, nice hearty pub meal somewhere, but I'm not necessarily... When last did you watch it? Was it when you were, like, 16? No, I watched it this week. No, no, I mean, before oh, that. Oh, no, when it, yeah, when it just came out, yeah. Oh Jesus! So there was did, no. There did was, you even remember the film well going into it? No, I remembered a couple of scenes. I remember yeah. the bit where she becomes she puts up the force field in the water where they were getting shot by guns. Yeah, and I remember the bit where uh, he was paddling across the water and the kid was being the um, 
the oh yeah he was being murder, the, the which the is super murder, cute yeah, yeah. and i also remember the line that you know are we there yet are we there yet and then, we'll get there when we get there because it was such a kids in the car long trip sort of thing yeah wow so it was almost like but i didn't remember any of it was the story almost line. watching it again for the first time well so quay to give you a little bit more perspective more time has passed between when i saw the movie last from when i was born to when i first watched it Wow, yeah. that's so scary. It's hey, very um, scary. Movies will do that to you. They'll make you realize how old you are. Thank you, Quaid. No, because <laughs> I, or even when I think about Toy Story, like. And <laughs> what would you give it? I said four out of five stars. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yeah. Because I think it deals with very complicated themes. And it's it a good well. movie, but like you said, Pixar is very good at tackling complicated things. And Sometimes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, I, I'm happy that they put out consistently good films. Um, I don't think they consistently put out good films. I think they used to put out consistently good films. I think Cars Onwards has been a bit of a downward spiral. I mean, I'm someone who personally finds it difficult to find machines cute or empathetic, so that's why I, <laughs> No, no, it's why I struggled with Cars and Wally. I'm like, I don't care, it's a robot. Uh, no, but, but Wally some, was some, cute. The first half cute, of but Wally's I didn't really good. No, cute, but I didn't care about him. I was just sort of like, okay, well, the Furby has opinions now. But I wasn't necessarily worried when things were happening because I didn't believe in its sentience. I thought there was a lot of interesting commentaries about the, the way our planet is heading that I thought were very relevant, but I wasn't worried about the robot. Yeah, definitely. Why don't we now go into your, your film that you chose that I kind of low-key also chose? <laughs> Wait, but what's the movie? I'm about to tell you, but I'm being dramatic. I'm swooping you into it. Oh, but you haven't even told us what the movie is called. The movie is called <laughs> The Favourite, and it's directed by your fellow Greekman, Yorgos Lanthimos. It came out in 2018. <clears throat> came out in 2018. Directed by Deborah. Uh, sorry, it was written by <laughs> Deborah Davis, Tony McNaman. McNair. I said that wrong. She was trying to get this film off the ground for a while. She was. Also, this is the first film that Yorgos uh, directed that he didn't write. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Carry on. <laughs> and Quaid, you and I watched The Favourite the first time together. We did. We were, we were on a double. Grader. It was a double date. It was a double date. You were on the way to see a different film, and we bullied you into watching this with us. And aren't you glad? Well, yeah, because what movie was I going to watch instead? The Eighth Grader. Oh, the Eighth Grade. Yeah. Oh, thank fuck, I saw this instead. Uh huh. Jesus. Okay, so let me take you. Oh no, I've already tried done this bit. Yeah, do so, it, do it, do it. Quaid, let me take you back. It's the late seventeenth, early eighteenth century. Let me do century. the accent. Let me take you back. It's it's the late seventeenth, early eighteenth century to jolly old England. England is at war with France. <laughs> Despite this, partying, racing ducks, and chilling out eating pineapple is all the rage. Queen Anne, she's depressed. Her husband's dead, and so are her children. Even though in the movie it doesn't really reference it. She's frail and she's a little bit older. She occupies the throne. Her close friend, Lady Sarah, played by Rachel Weiss, governs the country in her stead while tending to Anne's illness and mercurial temper. So I think it's fair to say that Lady Sarah is essentially running the country, but doing it through Queen Anne, pay, played by the incomparable Olivia Colman. This was her first, I would say, major serious role in a big movie. Olivia Colman loved her from Peep Show, love her in everything. She can make you cry, she can make you laugh. Incredible. New service. Abigail, played by Emma Stone, shows up. She used to be belong to a noble family, but her dad had a bit of a gambling problem and ended up losing her in a game of... What's the game of? It's some weird sort of oldie-worldie. Yeah, but also Abigail is Lady Sarah's cousin. 
That's correct. She is Lady Sarah's cousin. She <laughs> is attempting to charm Lady Sarah and Queen Anne. They're having none of it. Sarah kind of takes Abigail under her wing, um, and Abigail sees a chance to return to her aristocratic roots. As the politics of war become quite time-consuming for Sarah, Abigail steps into breach to fill the Queen's companion. Their burgeoning friendship gives her a chance to fulfil her ambitions, and she will not let women, men, politics, or even rabbits stand in her way. Quaid, what did you think of this film? Oh, I mean, oh, look, I love this director. When The Lobster first came out, I was like, I think I found my new favorite director. But then when Killing of a Sacred Deer came out, I was a bit like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> but then when The Favorite came out, I was like, yes, he is one of my favorite new directors. I love him. I, I love, love him. him too. We need to meet him, this, this wed him. This movie's so good. I love the surrealism of the movies that he makes that he's written. <gasps> this movie that it's written by someone else and based on historic events, I feel like grounds it slightly, but with his twist to it, really takes it to that ecstatic, slightly surreal state. Well, it's, a, it's a black comedy, and I just love how all the characters are so witty in their speech. It is and simply marvellous. I feel like a lot of that is down to casting. They have such good comedic actors. Well, yeah, so you have Olivia Colman, who's Queen Anne, you have Emma Stone, who plays Abigail, and you have Rachel Wicks. Who plays Lady Sarah Churchill. But you also have... Um, Nicholas Holt isn't really funny, but you have him as Robert Hart. I think Nicholas Holt actually has pretty good comic timing and is good at sort of fulfilling his role as kind of the dry butt. And Joe Alwyn plays Samuel Masham, who ends up... Masham, is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. he he's ends also up, an absolute honey. Well, he ends up marrying Abigail. I don't think he's an absolute honey, but also he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Oh. Well, did you know that? No, I didn't know. Yeah, that. whatever. We won't even. You can cut that bit out. Anyway, I'm going to start by saying. Well, I want to start with oh. my fun facts. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Tell me the fun facts. Okay, so did you know? So Lady Sarah, Rachel Vice, the end of the movie, she is exiled. Correct. Yeah, for embezzling money. Apparently. No, she doesn't embezzle money. She's framed. Apparently, the real Lady Sarah really didn't enjoy being in Europe. She thought that everyone was too stuffy and not fun. But despite being exiled, she was still allowed to keep her titles. Did you know that her lineage did end up coming into power? Lady Sarah's full name is Lady Sarah Churchill. As in Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill is a descendant of hers, was born in the castle that was built for her by Queen Anne, and yeah, is a descendant of Lady That's Sarah. That's crazy. Do you know another relative of hers? Tom Cruise. No. Tilda Swinton. <laughs> the first wife of our current King Charles. Diana. Diana Spencer is a descendant of Lady Sarah. Diana Spencer. Diana Spencer. Wow. And Lady Di's son, Prince mm. William, mm is going to be the next king. So, yes. Lady Sarah's lineage will be the King of England. That's crazy. So, she does come into Good power eventually. Work, That's a fun I mean, fact. Too bad she couldn't live to see the title. It's been like... Hundreds God, of years. Hundreds of years. Okay. Costume designer Sandra Powell initially used anachronistic fabrics. Oh, sorry. Intentionally used anachronistic fabrics. Laser-cut lace and vinyl were used for many of the clothes. The servants' dresses and breeches are made from denim, denim recycled from thrift stores and jeans throughout England. Queen Anne's dressing gown 
is made from a Chanel blanket that Powell found on eBay. So there you go, that resourcefulness. There wasn't a huge budget and they couldn't afford to rent the costume, so they made everything from scratch, including all of the wigs. Now, Nicholas Holt actually had named all of his wigs as well. His main wig he called Barbara, or mainly Babs, though he also has an orange one called Lulu. <laughs> what an interesting man. Exactly. Uh, Rachel Weiss, who holds a British and American citizenship, and Emma Stone are the only Americans in the cast. I have others. Oh, you know, they mainly used available light to film, which you can see it's quite beautiful. The fact that they only used light that was from candles or windows and things like that. They had backup lights just in case those things failed, but they managed to film mainly using available light, which I think partly lends to the uh, film's incredibly naturalistic appearance as far as light is concerned. Well, it's funny that you're talking about light because one point I have here that I want to talk about is the colour saturation in the film. I didn't realise how intense the colours were after re-watching it. It's strange. The not so much the indoor scenes, because the indoor scenes you can't quite tell, but the outdoor scenes, fuck that grass was green. To the point where I was like, I think this is a little bit too oversaturated. I really liked it, because it's England. It's I so did I did love the cool colour palette, though. The cool colour palette, apart from at night time when the fireplace yeah, and the, the candles are going, oh. is so beautiful, and they're all wearing those, and they, then they, Abigail those can dark see, eyes. And then Abigail can see Queen Anne and Lady Sarah. Having sexual Ex. intercourse. Oh, that's another fun fact that um, I do enjoy. So, during the filming of their first sex scene, Emma Stone was nervous that she would go up too high on Olivia Coleman's leg. Coleman had the idea to borrow a large makeup sponge and put it between her legs for Stone's hand to touch in an interview on The Graham Norton Show. Coleman said Stone was very surprised. Her face was a picture. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's it's strange because I kept on saying to my mum, you need to watch this film, you need to watch this film. And both my partner's mother and my mother both did not like this film, which kind of breaks my heart oh, because why? this film's phenomenal. Um, my mum's quote unquote, my mum said, Oh, I thought this was going to be like Downton Abbey, but it wasn't. I'm just like, no. It was mom. just with more scissoring and fingering. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's get into the film. So I wanna first say, look, there is definitely no subtlety in the strategy. Abigail and Lady Churchill definitely go guns blazing. And I feel like both women may have been a bit more successful in their endeavours if they chose a more ambiguous approach. However, I did enjoy the power struggle. I, I, I don't say. know. I don't feel like... I feel like Lady Sarah definitely took a big swing when she threatened to blackmail Queen Anne. But, but that's what I mean. Not just Lady Sarah. Also, with well, Abigail. Well, when Abigail poisoned... Sarah, it's very obvious who would have poisoned Sarah. And well, I, also, I think she wasn't expecting her to come back, though. But also Abigail coughing in the Queen's presence to get her attention and saying, oh, sorry, I think I got a cough picking those herbs to heal your leg. It was, I don't know, It's and it's a hard thing because Abigail was also pushed to extreme measures. If she didn't act, she was going, you know, her life would be in well, jeopardy. Well, that's, that's because the thing. I think you saw very because much Because Lady was... Churchill, or Lady Sarah Churchill, wasn't very kind to her own cousin, which I found really strange. But it was also her first cousin, not her sixth cousin, not her tenth cousin, her first cousin. Well, I think something that if you were to watch The Crown, you would understand that uh, the British class system is incredibly important. They care about that shit far more than you should. So I think that keeping your station was very important to these people and that probably took favour over being cousins. But I also think that even though Abigail's character I find quite detestable, I also completely understand her need to survive because it really drives home that scene where the other... She really doesn't have a place because there's no camaraderie amongst the people she's now working with because they... I know where the 
beginning. Well, they, yeah, where they, you put the lime in the bucket and get her to start washing the floors and it burns her. It's, she's getting it from both directions. And also she's clearly was used to a position and a comfort beforehand that she lost because of her father being reckless and pissing everything up the wall. But then she's not embraced by the community that she's now forced to work in. So she has to act, she has to do something to get ahead. I would say that the problem is though, she becomes too much of a people user. And yeah, she becomes sloppy and she has no loyalty to anybody. No, and by the end of it, it's quite sad because at the beginning I was rooting for her. I was like, yes, I want you to climb the ranks. I want you to be safe. However, by the end of it, I was like, oh no, you've become, not, you're just not a very likable character anymore, which is sad because you've achieved your goal, but now you're abusing that power that you now have. And whereas before, I hated Lady Sarah, but then by the end of it, I liked Lady Sarah. See, I always liked Lady Sarah because I feel like, and sometimes I might be this person in your life, Quaid, the people that really love you are sometimes the people who just won't shut the fuck up to you, like the people that really are sort of a little bit, sometimes a bit too much, a little bit micromanaging, but it's because they genuinely care. You could tell that Lady Sarah really you loved can. Anne. She well, uh, I, no, I really, did I, you think, I, I think, think she cared more for her country she, and her well, status more than she cared for Queen Anne, but think, she did well, still care about Queen Anne. I think Anne. she cared about Queen Anne because you could see that when she was telling her, don't eat the blue cake, don't have the hot chocolate, you're going to make yourself sick. Like she's telling her things to do that are not necessarily fun that are not going to placate her in the short term, but are better for her health and better for her safety. But I also think that her, like you said, her love was distributed between her country. She also, despite the fact that she was cheating on her husband with the queen, you could tell she also cared for her husband because she was trying to keep everything afloat. Despite the fact they were an aristocratic family, she was the one wearing the pants in the family, keeping it, making sure that everyone kept their position and kept their status and stayed in a comfortable position. So I feel like even though she came across as a bit of a ball breaker, she very much was was the person who sort of kept everything together because she cared. She wasn't, she wasn't self, I mean, she was self-interested because she wanted to survive, obviously, but also because she was balanced. Whereas Abigail was solely self-interested. She just wanted to get by and survive herself. Whereas Sarah, maybe because she hadn't been challenged in the same way that Abigail had, but was sort of more evenly distributed with what was going on. Well, I, also the thing about Abigail that I also I think didn't... she looks super sexy with the eye patch as well. Oh, they all look sexy. But the thing is with Abigail, one thing I didn't understand about her actions was that she finally weds Samuel Marsham, and so which makes her a lady now. However, as soon as they're married, she's straight away abusing the relationship, which I couldn't quite understand because I'm like, Abigail, if Samuel Marsham decides to... Actually, no, were they allowed to divorce back then? Because I'm sorry, but like on the night of your wedding, giving a hand job to your husband while murmuring your thoughts and plans out loud, that does not suffice to having a healthy sex sexual relationship with but, your but, spouse. But the thing is, it was clearly about getting her status back. Well, that's the thing. She didn't love him. No, of course not. She was trying to survive. And again, that comes down to she was using people, but using them to the point where she wasn't even like, I'm going to use them in a way that benefits both of us, or at least I'm going to be pleasant about it. She was just focused on the next thing. So she's like, marry him, get that position, move on, you know, jerk him off. And then we've had sex. So it's the marriage is consummated. And then he's just sort of in this relationship now. And her and Abigail's relationship with Robert Hartley, who was played by Nicholas Holt, was also very interesting because he's the leader of the opposition. So pretty much... Robert Harley the whole time is arguing against the Queen's choice. Well, it's not really the Queen's choice. It's more Lady Sarah's, Sarah's choice, choice to um, double the property taxes in order to fund the war. Whereas Robert Harley's like, no, we should make peace with France. Yeah. We should come to an agreement. 
And then it's strange also because on the other end, Lady Sarah's husband's also in, in this war on the front lines and he could be at risk of being killed. So in a way, it is quite funny that she doesn't support Robert Harley straight away because in a way, if she does support him, that means she can pull her husband from the war and he no longer has to fight. But I but think then she... also she's less likely to be in a position where she's pulling the Queen's strings if... But see, and this is the, thank you for saying pulling the queen's strings. Oh, she definitely that, was. Well, and uh, this is what I wanted Bo to say. Both of them manipulated her. And that's the thing. So after watching this movie a second time, I definitely had more empathy for Queen Anne because initially I thought she was this spoiled crybaby, but afterwards I realized everyone is actually using her for her for their own agenda. They're like leeching off her, and it's quite sad because she doesn't really have. Friends, People care more for her because of her status and will use her to what means. But this poor woman is like women. This poor woman is like wheelchair bound. She's depressed. I honestly think she has PTSD from losing 17 children. Yeah, she, she, she's, she's someone who the people that are the closest to her and love you because you are family, her husband. And even then that was probably an arranged thing that took forever to actually have that intimate relationship with. But then her children, which is all she wanted. She, you know, she lost all of those. Yeah, like you said, she's depressed. Also, she's royalty. So she's not elected. She is born into power. She didn't choose that position. She's found herself with a huge amount of responsibility, but suddenly just depressed because she realizes that she doesn't necessarily have any authentic relationships. Exactly. And every time, what I loved also about Queen Anne's character was every time that she saw or anyone else having fun or enjoyment, she would either get depressed or isolate herself or put a stop to it. So I Absolutely. love that scene where the violins, the violinists are like playing outside in the courtyard and she hears it and it brings her and Abigail to tears. And then she's like, she starts screaming out the window and she's like, stop playing, stop the music. It was Olivia just Coleman hilarious. Olivia Colman is so, so good. She's I laughed at her so much in a good way. I was laughing with but her. But see, this is the thing. She's one of those actors in a role like this. You can find her comedic and moving in the same action. So she can do something yeah. like that. And it's funny, but it's also devastating. And it's it's something that is very hard to achieve. I think that she's such a nuanced actor. Also, a dedicated actor. Quaid, you are an actor. Tell me, would you ever, yep. for a role, gain 16 kilos? Uh, well, what I want to know is how much money were they getting paid for this? It depends on the money. By the sounds of it, not much. It was a low-budget film where they were making their own wigs, so I feel like it was definitely a passion project. But, oh, not, not, okay, well, and how about this as a question? It's not about the money, but to be in one of your Goss's films, would you put on that much weight? Oh, yes. Yeah, there you go. The, yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, and also, did you, were they using a fisheye lens for oh. the filming of this? Because center frame was quite normal and uh, precise, but then the sides were quite distorted. I do not know if you would actually call it a fisheye lens. I would venture to say that they used architectural wide angle lenses, which will Got also you. distort the rooms in the same way. Some of them may have actually been fisheye lenses, and I think that feeds into more sort of the Flemish style of painting from around the same time where they usually have a fisheye mirror in the background to sort of show off, hey, look, we can paint things that are distorted, but it really wonderfully reflects and shows the grandeur of a room. Because I think that is something that is very difficult to do while filming scenes in palaces and in locations that are meant to be awe-inspiring and impressive, you don't quite get how dwarfed these figures are amongst all this grandeur. So I really enjoyed the use of 
practical filming. Again, the natural light, the vividness of the film, and you know it was all shot on film beautifully. And the and the, and yeah, the incredible lenses that you speak of, because same that really left an impact. That that sort of stretching and distortion. Definitely. Wow. I, I Have we gone into the specifics of, I guess, the four main characters and what power they wanted? And why I, those we haven't, struggle? so let, let's go through it. Okay, so we'll go with Queen Anne. What did Queen Anne want in terms of power? I mean, she already had the power, so I don't think she cared about it, to be honest. I think she just wanted to be happy. I think she wanted power over her own pleasures Life. and satisfaction. And, yeah. she, and she wasn't allowed them or they or they blew up in her face. So she wanted to enjoy her family. Her family died. She wanted to enjoy food and physicality, like things like eating nice things, drinking nice things. She got gout and was really unhealthy and would throw up. She wanted to enjoy her intimate relationships and they were things that were being used to politically manipulate her and blew up in her face. And the one person that was probably still using her but closer to her, she ended up exiling because because the other one manipulated her and then she realizes in the end that this person is cruel-hearted when she catches her torturing one of her bunnies. I know. It's so sad. I can't believe Abigail steps on the rabbit. Well, she's a bitch. Like, you know. So, and then let's talk about Abigail. What did Abigail want? Well, Abigail wanted security and power and exactly. she was going to do that no matter what hurdles or, or obstacles yeah, that were or in no front of her. Who or she who had it would to, hurt. I think, yeah, who she had to burn on the way was the big thing. She didn't care who she had to step on or who she had to cut. She just wanted to get to a place where she was safe. To be honest, so I kind of don't blame Abigail, though, because the way that Lady Sarah was treating her was very much... If you fuck with me, I will destroy you. That was very much Lady Sarah. So That's I, politics, baby. Also, I think that once blame. she got herself to a position where she married a nobleman, restored her station, and had some sort of security and estate... Yeah, she should have stopped there. She should have been like, you know what, I think I'm good. Yeah. And then just very quietly veered off. Veered off. But Abigail was like, no, nah, But I also, back, back, to, back to Queen Anne. Even when she wanted to feel beautiful, she came in and she had, like, the makeup on and she was all dressed up. And then Lady Sarah goes, you look like a badger, what are you doing? And starts wiping it off. And even though she may have been right, she didn't want the queen to make a fool of herself. She just wanted to feel pretty and have a nice night. And well, she I want to talk about either. my favourite quote in this film. Queen Anne says to Lady Sarah, I wish you could love me as she does, referring to Abigail. And then Lady Sarah says, you wish me to lie to you. Oh, you look like an angel fallen from heaven, your majesty. No, sometimes you look like a badger and you can rely on me to tell you. And then Queen Anne says, why? And then Lady Sarah says, because I will not lie, that is love. And that is beautiful. I think it's so beautiful and I think it's so powerful and I think it's so true to so many relationships where so often we feel like we're put in a position where we have to alienate the people we care about the most to try and protect them. And we might not always get it right, but I think that, yeah, it, it's much better than placating someone just to get what you want. And I think we see that a lot in people's relationships where it's a little bit superficial and then people just in to make sure that they're interested in their own security. And then Lady Sarah, what did Lady Sarah want? I think Lady Sarah, as I said before, cared about... Actually, no, does she care about the country? I think she does in, in a very English and traditional way. She cares about English pride, which is why the war was important to her. I think that she, yeah, I think she cared about her station. But, but what did she want she, in the end? That's what I'm a bit confused about. I think about. she wanted to keep things ticking along. I think yeah. she enjoyed her life. She enjoyed her, well, I think she also enjoyed her life, but she enjoyed keeping things on track. She, she wasn't just interested in sitting back and sort of enjoying herself and looking after herself. She wanted to, she wanted progress. She wanted to push things forward. Um, even if that wasn't necessarily objectively the correct thing to do, she had interests outside of herself. Of course. And then 
what did Robert Harley want, who was the first Earl of Oxford and Earl Mortimer? He obviously wanted the land tax not to go up because he owned a land himself, so... I think, well, that's just it. I think he's very similar to Sarah in the sense that he is interested in himself, so he does want to make sure that he's not paying more tax and he does want to be okay. But I do think that he is interested in England as well, but just in a different way because obviously he doesn't want the country to be at war. He doesn't want people to be sent off being killed. He doesn't want, you know, like, he, and also he wants a slightly more, I guess, democratic country where, again, it's only the noble people, but people have a bit more of a say as what's going on. And yes, he is self-motivated because he is a landowner. So I'm not going to pretend that he was altruistic, but I think that he, again, was interested in the country, uh, himself, of course, but also, yeah, the country. But also Abigail sleeping with Queen Anne was the biggest fuck you to Lady Sarah. I love that. When Lady Sarah walks away and you see Abigail open her eyes and like smile. Oh, it was such a devilish grin. And it was a power move. And I love also the part where Abigail says to Lady Sarah, don't worry, your secret is safe with me, referring to she knows that Lady Sarah and Queen Anne have a sexual relationship. I love how Lady Sarah shoots at her with a blank. I think that's great because it's essentially saying, don't you fucking threaten me. Because when people tend to do things like that, it's obviously a power play because what they're really saying is, I know your secret. So if we're not, if you're not going to do what I want, I will tell people. It's going, don't worry. I know your deep, dirty secret. I won't tell is essentially saying this is something I've got over you. So Sarah's saying, I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head if you threaten me like that. And I quite like that flex. This movie for me is definitely a nice, tidy package. It could have gone for longer, but it didn't, which is good. I think it was I completely perfect agree. time. It was it wasn't yeah, it was nice and neat. For, and for refined. a film that was done in such a such a beautifully artistic way, it was also quite nice and neat and tidy. Definitely, so, I, because um the lobster I think goes a little bit longer and it, the pacing is quite slow, whereas this one, pacing is still slow but not in the same way that the lobster is. There's a bit more of a momentum, a rhythm to this. Oh, absolutely. I think part of that is helped by the fact that this was written by someone else and is about real events, whereas I feel like his films that he conceptualizes... Set in, like, a dystopian future? Oh, no, they're very surrealist. Oh, surreal, of course. Or or there's magical realism in them, which means that you are sort of... Part of the film is spent getting the audience on board with the rules of the reality that he's set up for you to be part of, um, which I enjoy, but I also know a lot of people that hate that about his films. The amount of people I've tried to get to watch The Lobster because I fucking love it. And the Lobster like, is and then they're just fucking like, amazing. Why does everyone talk the same? What are they doing? So, it doesn't make sense. So, to all our listeners, if you have not watched The Lobster, please go watch The Lobster. Did you know it is one of my favourite films. And I know that because shoutouts Cooper, who listens to our podcast, said he watched The Lobster. Did he like it? We recommended it and he loved it. Yeah. It's amazing. Please watch The Lobster, everyone. And thank Thank you, Cooper, for watching The Lobster. Yes, thank you, Cooper. What are we giving this movie out of five stars? Oh, I want to give it a 4.5. It's fucking good. Oh, wow, you really like it? I'll I'll give it a four. It's very good. Very, very good. Should we go to our next segment? Let's fucking do it, man. I'm so excited. Okay, so who's picking out of the glass vase? I'm feeling generous, so you do it. Also, I think I I I did it No, I think it is you. No, No, because Amrita did last week where she put out power. And then are you sure you did it before then? No, it was you. Yep, so you go. All right. Oh my god. I'm so excited. What will be the theme for episode 11 of Cinephile Paradiso? Drum roll. It is... Quaid, you can actually revisit one of your movies that you didn't do before. What? What is it? The theme is Northern Ireland. What? Oh, fuck. Wow, I was not expecting this. Okay, Northern Ireland. Okay, yep, yep. 
beautiful guys. So join us next week to discover the world of leprechauns Where and Quaid, gold at the end of the rainbow. Where Quaid will have definitely been practicing his Belfast accent and he can dazzle us all with it because I'm pretty excited. I reckon he can pull it off. Do you? Find out next week on Cinephile Paradiso. Love you. Bye. Bye. Cinephile Paradiso is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you.